Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Also down the line, we have Martin Arnold, our banking editor. And from Milan, we have Rachel Sanderson, our correspondent there. This week, we'll be discussing Italian banks and the crisis in the sector there. Also a look at a week on or 10 days on from the vote for the UK to leave the EU. Some of the consequences at Royal Bank of Scotland and in terms of the Bank of England's financial stability outlook. And also a look at US stress tests and the results there. Let's go now to Rachel in Milan. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. It's a kind of mayhem, isn't it, in the Italian banking sector? What exactly is going on? What we've seen is very sharp share falls over the last few days since the surprise outcomes for the leave vote of Brexit. This has been following very sharp share falls earlier in the year about jitters over Italy's 200 billion euros of gross non-performing loans. We saw sharp share falls in January. Shares have fallen again, as we said, because of the Brexit vote. We're now seeing Italian bank shares down about 52% so far this year. And in turn, what we're looking at is particularly concerns about one of Italy's biggest banks, Unicredit and the capital levels there, and Italy's third largest bank by assets, Montepaschi di Siena, the world's oldest bank founded in 1472. And in particular, the focus is now on this idea that the government would like to try and bail out MPS and potentially more of the Italian banking sector because it realises that there's no other way forward. It can't follow the letter of the European rules and bail in, in the language of regulation, bail in these bondholders rather than use bailout money from the government because... It seems a lot of banks had sold bonds to their retail investors and they're worried that there'll be a kind of loss of confidence in the banks if they bail in bondholders and a loss of deposits as well on a run on the banks. Is that a fair summary of why they feel that they have to go for bailout rather than bail-in? The concern is definitely that bail-in equals bank run, as a very senior government official said to me several months ago. So this has been an ongoing concern. The central issue about the Italian banking system is quite how it is wedded and sewn into the entire Italian landscape, both political, corporate and social. As you said, there is an issue about depositors having also bought bonds in the bank. There is also an issue about the fact that these banks are the main source of lending for Italy's SMEs, and Italy's SMEs make up 70% of the country's GDP. And on the third front, there is a situation that, as is well known, this politics is very closely tied into the boards and the livelihoods of these banks. Monte di Siena very closely linked to the centre-left, for example, 
So there is opposition on all fronts to the idea of bailing in Italy. You could bring up the fact of why on earth did the Italian government, and it was the bureaucratic government of Enrico Letta and the technocratic government before that of Mario Monti, sign up to the bailing rules. But this is why, as you said, the government is keen to, as it were, put an injection of capital into Montecipaschi. They are looking, though, at flexibility in the European rules. What they are looking at is the possibility of doing a precautionary recap or also of using the government-sponsored privately-backed fund Atlante in order to put money into Montecipaschi. As you know, Atlante was set up a couple of months ago to backstop two cap hikes at failing regional banks for which they found no investors. What we're looking at now is whether someone like the Treasury-owned Casa Depositi e Prestiti, which has 410 billion euros in assets under management, could give an extra injection of capital to Atlante, which would allow Atlante to then work as a conduit to helping Montecipaschi. All very complicated and convoluted, as you can see. Yes. And a final question for you. This is rubbing up against all kinds of opposition at an EU level, potential concerns around state aid and so on. Who's going to win? Is it going to be Prime Minister Renzi or the European Commission? I think what you're going to see is a fudge of sorts. I think everyone will come out winners for fear that everybody will come out as a loser. So from what I understand at the moment, beneath the sort of shouting that we have seen and declarations that we've seen of defending EU rules by German Chancellor Angela Merkel over the weekend of Mr. Renzi saying, you're not the school teacher. But what you're going to see is that underneath that, on both sides, they are looking for flexibility, which will allow Italy to put some money into shoring up its banks. The concern being, one, a greater impact on the Italian economy, which is already only seeing weak economic growth and expectations that because of the Brexit fallout, Italy may go back into recession, which is going to cause its 200 billion of gross non-performing loans to increase again. And also the fact that Italy has a major constitutional referendum taking place in October on which Mr. Renzi has wagered his job. And city analysts have said the risk of political instability coming out of Italy as a result of that constitutional referendum is the major political risk that Europe faces in the next month. And with Europe having already to deal with the turmoil from the Brexit vote, they don't want to see major trauma and economic and political turmoil coming out of Italy. Well, a lot is clearly hanging on this, not just in Italy, but right across Europe and the world. So we'll keep a close watch. Thanks very much, Rachel. So moving on to our second topic for the day, a catch-up really on some of the key events in the UK banking sector following that Brexit vote 10 or 11 days ago. Emma, you've been looking at some of the most striking symptoms of fallout, in particular RBS which is still very much state-owned. What's happened there? Indeed. Well, following the votes leave the EU, share prices in UK banks, especially those that are more domestically focused, absolutely plummeted. And about a third has been wiped off RBS's share price, which currently languishes at about 165p, which is some way off the 500p that the government paid to bail out the bank during the crisis. So Ross McEwen, chief executive, said earlier in the week on a radio show with LBC that this hit to the share price means that it's now going to be tough for the government to sell off its 73% stake and expects that it will be at least two years before it can start to do so. And just to recap, the government kicked off 
the sale of shares in RBS in the UK's largest ever privatisation last August, selling a small percentage, about 5%, at 330p each, which crystallised a loss for taxpayers of about 1.1 billion. And this caused quite a bit of uproar. But the idea then was that that would seed the whole exercise in returning RBS to the commercial market and that over time it might yield a profit overall because investors would get a taste for this RBS stock. Exactly. I think also that it would boost liquidity by releasing more shares into the market and that ultimately RBS was part of a broader portfolio of state-owned assets that the government would look to sell off. So even if ultimately it didn't return a profit, it was part of a wider range, including Lloyd's Banking Group and Bradford and Bingley, which it could then look to sell off. And just to say that the government has also shelved plans to do a retail share sale in Lloyd's Banking Group this year, as well as begin the sale of some £17.5 billion worth of Bradford and Bingley loans. Yeah, clearly both those stocks, as you say, uh, Lloyd's and RBS, are a long way away from their uh, break-even point from the government's point of view. Another fallout from the crisis that we should talk about relates to the way the banks are regulated. Now, there had been a lot of warnings, obviously, before the Brexit vote from the Bank of England about all kinds of doom and gloom that would ensue. On some of those predictions, they've already been vindicated, I suppose. But interesting that they, on Tuesday, have come out in terms of the financial stability assessment with a, well, I suppose you can read it two ways, but they're basically going easy on the banks. Well, it seems like what they're doing is essentially ensuring banks continue to lend and buoy the real economy. So what they've done is they've actually said to banks to stop building up this so-called rainy day fund, the countercyclical buffer, it's actually called. They said at the start of the year that they require banks to build up this buffer at about 0.5% of risk-weighted assets up until 2017. But it's come out today and said to stop doing this and it will release this buffer, which amounts to about 5.7 billion and ultimately should help banks in the UK lend about £150 billion worth to both businesses and individuals to shore up the real economy. I suppose to look at this negatively, though, they're saying we're not in normal times. This is the rainy day. That's why you can forget about the rainy day fund. Exactly. Mark Carney and the Bank of England reiterated the fact that over the past few years, banks have done a good job of building up these um, capital reserves and this counter-cyclical buffer, which was seen as a rainy day fund, and in fact required banks just to put more of their capital buffers into this bucket. But the fact that it's now being released is a signal that these normal times are over and that post the referendum vote, actually, it's a warning that there could be stresses to come. Okay. Well, talking about stresses, we have our third item focused on the US stress tests, results of which have come out in the last few days. And predictably enough, perhaps, they're showing that US banks generally are in fine fettle and they've authorised them to return a cumulative $96 billion to their shareholders in what is deemed excess capital. Meanwhile, a couple of European banks which have gone through the tests have failed yet again, namely Deutsche Bank and Santander. Martin is joining us on the line. Is it too simplistic to say that these tests split into two, the US banks that have largely done rather well and the European banks that have formed part of the test, which have been a rather embarrassing failure? Absolutely right, Patrick. If you're a shareholder in a US bank, you're going to be pretty pleased from the results of the so-called CCAR stress tests that the Federal Reserve carried out particularly as 30 of the 33 banks passed the stress test, which means that they're allowed to pay capital out in the form of dividends and also to return capital through share buybacks and go ahead with their planned 
distributions to shareholders, which will be up 30% on the previous year. So there's some more capital coming to shareholders. The one exception to that in the US side of things was Morgan Stanley, which was told that it needed to go away and check its homework, in a manner of speaking, and providing that it was able to rectify some of the things that weren't quite right, then by the end of the year, then it will be allowed to go ahead with its capital return plan. On the other hand, the foreign banks, as you said, had a pretty poor time. I think as expected, they are really struggling to adapt their systems and their reporting to the requirements of the Fed. It's not that they haven't got enough capital in the stress scenario. It's that they're failing on qualitative reasons. So they're unable to answer the the questions that the Fed is putting to them. They're unable to provide the amount of data and the kinds of data that the Fed wants. And so on these qualitative reasons, both Deutsche Bank, the German bank, and Santander of Spain failed. Deutsche for the second time, Santander for the third time. In terms of capital impact, it's worse for Santander because they've been blocked for a third year running from returning any capital from their U.S. operation, which means they've got more trapped capital there. And for the Deutsche Bank, it's less impactful because they weren't planning to return any capital from the U.S. Okay, so I suppose just one final word on whether you think this is another nail in the coffin for the European banks in terms of their global aspirations and magnifying the divide between the U.S. and European rivals. Yeah. So there has been rumours and speculation that this could be a real turning point for European banks in the US if they continue to fail these stress tests and the regulators continue to take a dim view of the way that they're organised there and the way that they operate, particularly with all of the biggest foreign banks in the US. They're all being forced to set up these so-called intermediate holding companies, which have got their own local pools of capital, their own local boards of directors and governance, and they pretty much act as independent banks that are regulated by the Fed locally. And that's going to be quite expensive in terms of setting these things up, putting the capital there that stays with those operations. And if they're on the wrong side of the regulators permanently, then there is a question as to how long that is sustainable, particularly if they can't return any capital back from those operations to the parent company. However, I think it's fair to say that at the moment we're not at that stage. Deutsche Bank, Santander, the others like Barclays, BNP Paribas, for all of them, it's a strategic necessity. If they're going to have any pretense of being a global financial institution, they must have major operations in the US. Well, we'll see how that pans out. Martin, thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Emma, Martin and Rachel and thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.